We'll hear argument first this morning in Mr. in number 92, 1662, United States against Granderson. Uh, Mr. Hunger. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Respondent was convicted of a felony that carries a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Under the sentencing guidelines, the presumptive imprisonment range was zero to six months. Instead of sending respondent to prison, the district court imposed a sentence of 60 months probation. Shortly after he began serving that sentence, respondent tested positive for cocaine, and the district court revoked his probation and sentenced him to 20 months in prison. The court imposed that sentence under 18 U.S.C. section 3565A, which provides that when a defendant possesses illegal drugs while on probation, the court shall revoke the sentence of probation and sentence the defendant to not less than one-third of the original sentence. The Court of Appeals reversed, holding that the phrase original sentence refers to the presumptive range of imprisonment that could have been imposed under the guidelines rather than the sentence of probation that was actually imposed. We submit that the Court of Appeals erred in reaching that conclusion. Our argument has two parts. First, the interpretation adopted by the Court of Appeals and urged by respondent is flatly inconsistent with the plain language of the statute and must be rejected. Second, once respondent's interpretation has been rejected, there are only two suggested ways to read the statute, and of those, only our interpretation is consistent with the statutory structure, context, and purpose. Turning to the first point, our principal disagreement with respondent concerns the plain meaning of the phrase original sentence. In our view, under either the dictionary definition or the ordinary common sense understanding of that phrase, it has only one possible meaning in the context of federal sentencing law. It means the initial judgment of a court specifying the punishment to be imposed on a convicted criminal. If that's the case, then you're arguing for a sentence of probation all over again, only one-third of, uh, with a one-third minimum of the original. I mean, if, that, if plain meaning is good, you've got to take plain meaning all the way. We, with respect, Justice Souter, we don't agree with that. We certainly agree that we have to take plain meaning all the way, but the fact that original sentence means the sentence of probation that was imposed in this case does not, does not mean that the defendant here had to be sentenced to a new sentence of probation. And there are two reasons why that is so. We agree that the phrase one-third of the original sentence, if considered in isolation, has two possible meanings. It could refer to the length of the original sentence, in this case 20 months, or to the length and the type of the original sentence, in this case 20 months of probation. And if that were the only thing we had to go on, uh, the, the, the answer you suggest would be the only one possible under the rule of lenity. But we have other guides to congressional intent here. Uh, first, and most important, uh, is the, the context in which that provision, one-third of the original sentence, uh, rests. In Section 3565A, Congress required the court to revoke the sentence of probation before resentencing the defendant. The word revoke is a term of art in federal sentencing law in the context of probation or other forms of, of conditional release. Do you, do you agree that this is uh, rather a poorly drafted statute? We do agree with that, Justice Blackman. If Congress uh, had, had more clearly expressed its, its intention, then obviously we wouldn't be here. But we don't believe that uh, the statute is so poorly drafted that we can't discern by applying normal rules of statutory construction the, the, the meaning that Congress, in fact, intended. Mr. Hunger, could, uh, following up on Justice Souter's uh, question, I suppose at the time the statute was enacted, there might well have been people still incarcerated who were sentenced to a term of imprisonment followed by a term of probation. And supposing someone was in jail on a, a 
15-year sentence, 10 years uh, jail to t- imprisonment, plus five years of probation. And that had not expired at the time the statute was enacted. And that person had his probation revoked in the third year of the probation period. What would the appropriate sentence be there? Well, as I understand the pre-existing sentencing scheme, Your Honor, that would not be a possible sentence because the way probation formally worked was that it was an alternative to imprisonment. A judge would either Im- impose a sentence of imprisonment and then suspend That's the execution. Now, but was that always true? I don't know whether it was always true, but certainly prior to the 1984 Sentencing Reform Act, the law was that, that, that probation was an alternative to imprisonment. The judge would either impose a sentence and then suspend the execution of that sentence or would suspend sentencing. So either there would be a suspended sentence of imprisonment or no sentence at all, and the, then the defendant would be on probation. But probation could not, you couldn't sentence a defendant to so many years of prison followed by so many years of probation. That was probation possible. would not have been a sentence prior to the 84 reform. That's also true, Your Honor. The probation was imposed in lieu of the sentence. It was the, the judge either suspended the sentence or suspended imposition of sentence and, and placed the defendant on probation was the language of the prior statute. On your view of the interpretation of this language, then, not less than one-third of the original sentence, what is the maximum to which the defendant could have been and the maximum sentence that could have been imposed? Well, it depends. If the, if the, the minimum required by our reading of the statute is within the guidelines range, uh, then the guidelines maximum would be the maximum because, because this, this, this provision of Section 3565A only trumps the other provisions of Section 3565 to the extent they're inconsistent. To the extent they're not inconsistent, they continue to govern. So if the, if the, the minimum is within the guidelines range or below the guidelines range, then the top of the guidelines range would still be the maximum. Because Which is, in this case... Well, in this case, it's six months, which is below, so, so the, the guidelines range is not the maximum. I don't follow that. If one-third of the original sentence is 20 months, yes. wouldn't the full sentence be five years? Well, it, the, the maximum sentence is five years if the court wishes to depart from the, uh, and has grounds for the, uh, an upward departure from the guidelines range. But normally, the maximum sentence that is available under subchapter A, which is the language of 3565A2. See, our position how, is that... How can, how can 20 months be one-third, and 60 months not be the full original sentence. We're talking about what this defendant's exposure is Yes, Your Honor. your reading of the statute. Yes, Your Honor, but the, the, the last provision of, the, of Section 3565A, the provision we're discussing here, only imposes a mandatory minimum. It doesn't change what, other, the other, what otherwise would be the maximum sentence. So to the extent that... that for instance, if the guidelines range here were 15 to 25 months and the, the mandatory minimum under this statute were 20 months, the defendant could be sentenced to, obviously he would have to be sentenced to 20 months, the court could sentence him up to 25 months because, because the provisions of 3565A2, which normally govern revocation and which provide that the court can impose any sentence that uh, would otherwise have been available under subchapter A, that provision would permit the court to go up to 25 months because a 25-month sentence would also have been available under subchapter A at the time of the initial sentencing. So the mandatory minimum 20 months trumps anything in section 3565 to the extent it's inconsistent, but, but to the extent there's something in 3565 that would permit a higher sentence, that continues to have effect. I don't understand why it trumps to anything consistent because uh, subsection 2, which is the any other sentence that was available provision, is trumped by the uh, by the proviso after it. 
which says notwithstanding any other provision. Yes, but the notwithstanding proviso only requires a mandatory minimum. It doesn't say the rest of sentencing law is totally inapplicable here. All it says is notwithstanding any other provision of this section, this mandatory minimum sentence must be imposed. Not, not less than one-third, you realize. That's correct. So, so to the extent that other provisions of Section 3565 are not inconsistent with the mandatory minimum, they continue to govern. Now, if the, if the mandatory minimum, as in this case, is higher than the guidelines range, is higher than any other sentence available under subchapter A, uh, then, then our position is that the mandatory minimum is also the maximum because the guidelines provide that when a mandatory minimum sentence exceeds the, the normal guidelines range, then that mandatory minimum sentence shall be the guidelines sentence. Uh, and you can't go higher than that. The, in, to, further on the point of, of why the word revoke demonstrates that a sentence of imprisonment rather than a sentence of probation is required, the word revoke is a term of art in federal sentencing law when applied to probation or other forms of conditional release. It means that, at least for a time, the defendant has lost the opportunity to enjoy the privilege of conditional release. Section 3565A2 demonstrates that in the context of probation under the current sentencing scheme, it makes clear that once a court has revoked a defendant's probation, probation is no longer an option and some other sentence must be imposed. So by using the word revoke in Section 3565A, the provision at issue here, Congress made clear... Well, is that necessarily true as just as a matter of pure uh, plain meaning? Supposing there was just one month left of the probationary, say he was on nine years probation, at the end of the probation he's caught with uh, uh, cocaine in his system. Uh, it, would it not be at least logically possible to revoke the remainder of that probationary period and impose a new sentence of three years probation? Well, first Isn't of all, that possible? the maximum probationary sentence is five years, but... Well, whatever. But applying, whatever. Right. Um, we don't think so because that's not the way revoke is used in federal sentencing law. It doesn't mean uh, terminate conditional release with the option of then imposing a new sentence of conditional release. What it means is you have lost your chance to enjoy conditional liberty and you're going to go to prison. You're your going to have a different sentence. enjoy the particular conditional liberty on which you've been sentenced. Well, the, 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 dichotomy in section, the dichotomy in section 3565A1 and A2 demonstrates this point. Um, and this, also, this applies not merely to probation under this statute, but it would, the same is true under previous statutes, the same is true for supervised release and, and parole. When, when revocation occurs, as a rule, the defendant goes to jail, and, and, and at the very least, conditional liberty is no longer possible. And in Section 3565A1, the court has an option of continuing the defendant on, on probation, the same probation, and, and extending the term if the court wishes. Well, I, I should think that you can argue, at least from a semantic standpoint... Uh, that if you revoke the first sentence of probation uh, and then impose a new sentence of probation with much more onerous conditions that you have to report for drug treatment, etc., etc., uh, that that is a different sentence of probation, and it's still a sentence that's available to the judge under the law. No, Justice Kennedy, because because that would not be revocation; that would be continuance. Th that's the dichotomy in Section 35. Well, but that, that's that's the argument. It seems to me you can argue that it's a, it's it's the imposition of a new sentence of probation with new conditions. But but our point is that Congress uses these words in a certain way in, in the federal sentencing sentencing scheme. Throughout the scheme, it consistently uses the word revoke to mean you're no longer going to enjoy uh, conditional release. It uses the word continue or extend. To, to, uh, to achieve the result you desire, and that's shown because in 3565A1, the first option a court normally has when a defendant violates probation is to continue the defendant on probation with or without extending the term or modifying 
or enhancing the conditions of probation. So if that were what Congress had meant, if Congress had meant the court should have the option of continuing the defendant on probation and modifying the terms or conditions, then that's what it would have said, because that's what it said in 3565A1. But instead, Congress said revoke, and revoke... Yes, but it says more than this, it says revoke and impose any other sentence. So two can contemplate something other than probation. Exactly. But the proviso doesn't say that. It refers back to one-third of the original sentence. And the original sentence was probation. But it also uses the word revoke, which, as we indicated, is always used... Unmodified by the additional language in subparagraph two. Well... As, our point is that whenever any place else in the system has all that baggage with it, but the statutory language doesn't say that. Well, it's a, it's a fundamental rule of statutory construction that we generally construe words used by Congress in a particular statute to mean the same thing. Every other place in the statute the word revoke is used, that's what it means. We submit Congress must have meant the same thing here. And there's another reason why we must reach that conclusion, and that's because it would be absurd, as even respondent concedes, to construe the statute as you're suggesting. No court of appeals has done so for the obvious reason that... But it isn't absurd because it's a floor and there are cases in which it would make sense. It's... If you impose more onerous terms of probation and an additional period of time, say there's only one month left to serve, it's not absurd. Well, it's a floor, not a ceiling. In the first place, it's not clear in that case that that would be permissible because the, the, the maximum sentence for probation is five years, it's not clear that this statute would authorize an additional uh, sentence on top of those five years. But, but leaving that point aside, um, the, except in the case that you've hypothesized, that is a defendant who doesn't do anything wrong until the last few months of a, of a lengthy probationary sentence, that is in most cases where this arises, where the defendant is in the first two-thirds of his probationary sentence, this statute, as you're suggesting it be construed, would make possible a more lenient sentence than is otherwise ever possible upon upon find a finding of a violation of probation. Normally, if a def- absent this provision, if a defendant had been found to have violated uh, the, the provision of his probation forbidding him from possessing drugs, the court would have only two options. It could continue the defendant on the same term of probation with or without extending that term and modifying the conditions. That is, the court couldn't shorten the term pr- of probation. It could extend it or leave it the same. Or the court could revoke probation, which means the defendant no longer gets probation at all and will be sent to prison. The court did not have the option of shortening the term of probation. But under your hypothesis, in the vast majority of cases, this provision would provide for the possibility of a more lenient sentence, that is, a shorter term of probation, than is otherwise permitted by law. And it would be absurd to think that Congress, in the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, where it was trying to reduce the demand for illegal drugs and discourage drug use and possession, would have enacted a provision that permits uh, persons who use drugs to be rewarded by the possibility of a more lenient sentence than is otherwise possible. Well, I don't Congress, think that's if, this, if this man had been separately prosecuted for the conduct that led to the revocation of his probation, what would have been his maximum exposure? The maximum penalty for simple possession by a, uh, a non-federal inmate is 12 months. Interestingly, if, if, if Mr. Granderson had been imprisoned, if the judge had sent him to prison rather than placing him on probation, and if Mr. Granderson had then possessed cocaine in prison, the maximum penalty... It, re- but you, you pointed to an absurdity in response to Justice Stevens. Isn't there something anomalous about saying if, if you had an independent prosecution, the maximum exposure would be 12 months, and yet without a separate prosecution, the person can be incarcerated for 20 months? I don't think so, Your Honor, because Mr. Granderson is in a very different position from a person who is simply prosecuted for possession of drugs. Mr. Granderson was given a second chance. He committed a felony punishable by up to five years in prison, and the judge didn't require him to serve one day in prison. The judge placed him on probation. Conditional liberty, conditioned on Mr. Granderson's But the maximum that the judge could have sentenced him under the guidelines was what? 
And for the original... Instead of the probation, would have been what, six months? Yes. The... Mr. Hunger, may I uh, ask you, under the former sentencing scheme, if some uh, defendant were placed on probation, I assume the court would have gone through uh, the mechanics of saying the defendant is sentenced to X amount of time in prison and then saying, but I suspend that term of imprisonment and, and uh, place you on probation. Not necessarily, Your Honor. Under the previous version of the statute, 18 U.S.C. 3651, uh, in, in the 1982 mm -hmm. version of Title 18, uh, and, and also I think under previous versions of the, of the probationary sentencing scheme, the court had the option. It could either uh, impose a sentence and then suspend the execution of the sentence, which is the option you identified, or it could suspend, sentencing, su su suspend the imposition of sentence. So there would be no sentence, assuming the defendant complied with the conditions of probation. And uh, what was normally done, do you suppose? I mean, in... in uh times when I used to participate in sentencing, the typical thing was to impose the sentence and then suspend it. I don't know, Your Honor. I, I know that it was done in both ways. I don't know what the relative uh, frequency well, of... If, if that were the practice, the, the language of the statute makes perfect sense because the original sentence would refer to the sentence that was suspended. If that were the practice under current... And, and that would make it uh, quite understandable. Yes. I don't know how this uh, language got in here but um, and it would, it's a little hard to figure it out. And it would show that Congress intended uh, the defendant to serve a significant term of imprisonment, but, but since that is not the way the current sentencing scheme uh, works, and we, since we always presume that Congress knows the law when it amends the law, we can't assume was, that Congress... Was this language, the original sentence language, put in there originally when that was the old scheme or not? No, Your Honor. It was, this was enacted in 1988 as part of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, and the uh, sentencing guidelines, the Sentencing Reform Act was enacted in 1984, and the sentencing guidelines went into effect in 1987. So when this was enacted, current law was uh, as we've described it. I, if there are no further questions, I'd like to... I have one more. This is a minimum provision that we're talking about, and really the, the only thing at issue is whether the sentencing judge uh, is... Um, I suppose it's whether he is able to go above whether he is both able and compelled to go above the maximum that was available at the time of the original offense. It is both whether he is well, able the, to and whether he is compelled to, isn't it? Well, there, there are two different... It depends on what you mean by maximum. It, we think clearly it requires the court to go above the guidelines range if, if the mandatory minimum yields that result, yes. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Well, I think I, I guess you are. The maximum say. incarceration term originally was six months. And you're no, Your saying Honor. that the judge is obliged to give a, at a minimum of 20 months. The maximum incarceration term originally was five years. The, the maximum the of the guidelines range was six months. The court can always uh, depart, assuming there are grounds for that. But yes, we're saying that the, the judge had to impose more than the maximum of, under the guidelines range because that's what we believe the only fair interpretation of the words of this statute require. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Hunger. Uh, Mr. Smith, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress has not unambiguously said it wants to fundamentally change the nature of federal probation revocations. There are four reasons why Judge Phyllis Kravitz's decision should be affirmed. 
First, the history of federal probation revocations. Second, the language of the statute. Third, the disparities caused by the government's interpretation. And finally, the legislative history. First, history. The government's brief is sparse on history, and the reason is exactly why Justice O'Connor asked the question. Historically, revocation terms have never been based on the probation terms. They have never been convertible. Before 1984, you had a sentence that was suspended, plus probation. After 1984, you had the guideline term imposed, plus probation. Before 1984, you went back to the sentence imposed, the, the sentence that was suspended. After 1984, you go back to the guideline range. Probation terms have never been used as the barometer ever in federal courts for the probation term. The government is seeking to... Probation terms have never been used as the barometer for probation terms. Perhaps I misspoke. I, I did, Your Honor. I apologize. What do you mean? For, probation terms have never been convertible into revocation terms. You've always looked back to either the sentence that was suspended before the 84 Act or after the 84 Act. You look back to the guideline range. Well, what, what do you mean by a revocation term? That's not a, a, a term that's ever used in the statute, as I recall. Uh, Your Honor, I'm asking, uh, I'm talking about the revocation sentence. The revocation sentence has never been based on the probation term, ever. Well, what is a revocation sentence? I mean, again, you know, the, the statute doesn't use that term. The sentence imposed upon revocation, Your Honor. When somebody's probation is revoked, the sentence imposed after revocation has never been based on the probation term. They've always used something different. And there's a reason for that. Probation terms are based on something very different. Rehabilitation. Probation terms are based on things like how long it takes to pay a fine back or how long it takes to do community service. It's not intended to be converted, and it never has been converted into revocation sentences. The government, from this tapestry of history, long history, is asking you to take two snippets, the 1984 Act's discussion of probation as a sentence and the 1988 Act's reference to original sentence, and ask you to view those two things in isolation, ignoring all of history. They want you to turn probation into proration. Well, it's never been done that way. And this court should not assume that Congress, without any warning and without any discussion, intended through these minor statutory changes to fundamentally change the way that probation works. The language of the statute confirms that there is not an unambiguous statement by Congress that they intend to change this. The government tries to give you the impression that they are using these sentence imposed. But the sentence imposed on Mr. Granderson was 60 months of probation plus a $2,000 fine. As Justice Souter said, taking that literally, one-third of the original sentence that the government tries to infer it is 20 months of probation plus a $667 fine. Well, what's your, what's your argument as to what the term original sentence means? So the, the 11th Circuit seemed to take the view that the original sentence was not a determinate thing at all, but a range, which I find very difficult to follow when you're referring to the original sentence. Your Honor, um, we submit it as the equivalent of what the old original sentence would have been un under old law. Uh, Justice O'Connor noted that the way it would be very clear under the old system. Uh, but wh wh what would it be in this case? It would be the top of the range, which would be the top. Well, wh why the top of the range rather than the bottom of the range? Well, Your Honor, I don't think that this court needs to answer whether it's the top well, or the bottom. Well, but I'd ask you that question, and you need to answer it. All right. Um, yes, Your Honor, I apologize if I misspoke. I think that the top of the range is the most logical understanding of what Congress meant. This is not a plainly written statute. The top of the range yields a minimum in every case, 
And I think that it is the most logical conclusion. Except that the the language of the statute now does clearly refer to a sentence of probation. Yes, Your Honor. And the sentence of probation given here was five years probation. I guess that's the basis of the argument of the government here. Yes, Your Honor. And so you can read the statute, as the government does, to say he was given a five-year sentence of probation initially. Your Honor, um, while it's true that in form probation is treated as a sentence, it's, it's called a sentence the new under the new statute, it is not treated as a sentence in every respect. A person who's on probation and then gets revoked, doesn't get credit for the time served on probation as if it's service of a sentence. Well, perhaps, except we have to do the best we can in interpreting this, and it is clear that 3565, as it's presently written, refers to sentence of probation. Yes, Your Honor. But they didn't use the word sentence of probation here. They used original sentence. They could have used sentence of probation. Well, but original sentence... Uh, could logically refer to the original sentence of probation, could it not? I mean, yes, Your Honor. Um, it also could refer to the sentencing guideline range. If you want to view it technically, Section 3742 refers to sentence... Oh, but that would be more of a stretch than it would to say it refers to the sentence of probation. Your Honor, I don't think so, viewed in its historical context. Um, this court would have to find that this... This technical change was meant to fundamentally alter the way probation revocations work. And I think that that is what is the real stretch here. For the, It's like the tail wagging the dog. The government is asking this court to infer from, from discussions, uh, minor discussions, no discussions in the legislative history. I, I indicated to the Solicitor General I would mention this case, and it's the Dusnup case. Uh, it's a Dusnup versus Tim, um, and in that case it's a bankruptcy case. But the court found that pre-code law should not be assumed to be fundamentally changed without at least something in the legislative history. Well, I'm not sure what you mean by a fundamental change in revocation. I mean, it's always been the case that if someone is convicted and uh, sentenced to probation, that uh, if the terms of the probation are violated, a revocation is possible. What we're looking at here is what is the range of required, uh, what is the required minimum sentence of incarceration in the event of um, a violation of probation that involves possession of a controlled substance. I, I don't think that's a fundamental change. You still have to go through the mechanics of revoking probation and then figure out what the mandatory minimum incarceration is. <coughs> Yes, Your Honor, you do have to do that. But what, what is different from history, fundamentally different, is you've never based the amount of revocation time on the probation term because probation serves a very different purpose. That's the fundamental change. It's never been done that way. Um, and it yields very strange results. Smith, maybe you've been too generous here. Uh, I, I suppose your, your first answer to Justice O'Connor, uh, were, were you not so generous, is that you, you don't mind uh, interpreting this thing uh, literally. Uh, if you interpret it literally, you end up with uh, uh, a probation term of one-third of the original sentence, right? Um, yes, Your Honor, that would be the literal interpretation. And so once we... De- I mean, literally, that's clearly what it means. And, and once we depart from that, the, the issue is simply whether we, we take a... I mean, really, to call it a non-literal interpretation doesn't really do justice to what a, what a leap it is. 
we, we, we take a fanciful interpretation. Uh, should we take the fanciful interpretation that favors your client or the fanciful interpretation that, uh, that favors the government? That's really the choice. Because the only literal interpretation gives your client, uh, as punishment, one-third of his original probation term. Yes, Your Honor. Um, you want to you know what I really think happened? In October of 1988, there had been almost no guidelines revocations. Even though it was passed in the Censoring Reform Act of 1984, it didn't go into effect until November 1st of 87 for crimes that were committed after then. For somebody to have gotten to the revocation stage, they would have had to commit a crime after 19, November 1st of 87, been arrested, been convicted, have the pre-sentence report prepared, be sentenced, and sentenced under the guidelines, which there was a big dispute before Mistretta whether the guidelines were even constitutional, then go out and be revoked and again be arrested and sentenced for revocation all before October of 88, less than 10 months after the guidelines went into effect. It is likely you really want to know what I think, that Congress was thinking about the old system when they did this. And it is not clear that this is what Congress intended. Well, but I, I'm still not clear on your answer to Justice Scalia. He, he points out, uh, it seems to me correctly, that you are in basic agreement with the government, so far as your submission so far, that your client must receive a term of incarceration. No, you're and right. I, I don't see why you, why you don't argue that one-third of the original sentence means one-third, as a minimum, of the original probation sentence, a probation sentence with maybe more onus conditions. But you, you seem to back away from that. Your Honor, if I did, I apologize. What I'm trying to say is this. I, I think the issue before this court is the cert petition issue. Did the lower court, did the Court of Appeals err in finding that it could not be more than the top of the guideline range? One, the original sentence could not be more than the top of the guideline range. And I think that this court can easily answer that, whether following Justice Scalia's interpretation or the Court of Appeals' decision below, that it does not. Well, we have to answer with some sort of reasoned opinion, uh, not just kind of a police uh, common denominator uh, type of... Well, what, what, what did the 11th Circuit say about... Did, do you think it followed the statute literally? Your Honor, I, I think they followed it, particularly in historical context, as closely as it could be followed. The guideline range replaced the old suspended sentences, in our view, and that's what they tried to go back to as the barometer. But they, they certainly didn't say, did they, that the, um, uh, the only sentence that could be imposed was probation. They did not, no, Your Honor. Well, and in fact, and Mr. Smith, the whole statutory scheme here seems to me to be perfectly clear that you can't reinstate someone on probation after they've had a controlled substance possession established. I mean, that just seems to be the clear import of the language. Your Honor, I, I don't agree for this reason. There are additional conditions that could be placed on the probation. While it may seem odd to put somebody back on straight probation, when the probation has a condition of inpatient drug treatment, it doesn't seem quite the same sentence. The disparities created by the government's interpretation are weird, to say the least. Mr. Smith, before you go on with that, do, do I understand you correctly to say that, on your view, if there must be incarceration then the top would be six months, and the minimum, not less than one-third, would be two months. Is that your view? Yes, Your Honor, and it's interesting. Uh, the uh, government below, in its plea agreement, uh, agreed not to recommend a sentence above the original six-month range. So it's clear that Mr. Granderson would not have gotten more than six months unless the judge disagreed with the government on what was... Your needed. interpretation of not less than one-third of the original sentence would be... Two, two months of some kind of confinement. 
The disparities by the government, however, are very strange. A person who's a misdemeanant who gets five years of probation, the government would have that person get 20 months in jail, more than the statutory maximum for the underlying offense. It would cause Mr. Granderson to get a higher minimum sentence of 20 months than his revocation range under the revocation guidelines would be if he distributed or manufactured drugs while on probation. It would cause him to get a minimum that is more than 40 times what he would get if convicted as a repeat drug possessor. Convicted a second time as a repeat drug possessor. It would even cause him to get more than if he possessed the drug that he possessed in the system in jail. If he'd had the audacity to bring it into jail, his maximum would have been one year. The government submits that it's more than that. Mr. Smith, if, if we adopt your interpretation, is it always the more lenient for the defendant, or does it just happen to be in the case of your client? Um, it certainly is in the case of my client, and we submit it will always the, be. There, there's, there's, there's no situation in which uh, using the government's uh, um, uh, system would, uh, would produce a lower sentence? Your Honor, we don't believe so, no. Um, the government situation also pretends further problems down the road. If this person who is a misdemeanor gets 20 months after the revocation and then possesses a gun, is that person a felon in possession? These are problems this court need not create. Our recommendation, and the one from the Court of Appeals below, has no such problems. The government, in all the courts of appeals that have adopted it, indicates no problems. And if you turn to the legislative history, you see why. If the government had intended, if the Congress, excuse me, had intended this fundamental change, don't you think there would be something in the legislative history, something? If they wanted to start using probation terms as the barometer, there's nothing. In the Duesnup case, you would think, based on that, that that would be required. More importantly... Duesnup dealt with, with, with the principle we've enacted in connection with the bankruptcy code in 1978, that absent some showing to the contrary, either in the legislative history or the statutory language, we would presume that the old uh, Bankruptcy Act uh, carry uh, the principles carried over. But we've never uh, had enunciated any such general principle in connection with the entire body of criminal law. No, Your Honor, not specifically, but I think, frankly, it ought to be more easily applied in a criminal context because the rule of lenity applies in a criminal context than would not in a bankruptcy context. No change from prior law unless it is specifically mentioned in the legislative history. Yes, Your Honor, that's how we read these notes. So you can't make any changes in, uh, in conference committee, for example. That's um, sort of a constraint upon Congress. Justice Scalia, I know you dissented from Duesnup and, and don't necessarily agree with that principle, uh, and, and I think it's a, an issue that... I disagree with much more than that. I, I wouldn't use it at all, but to say that, that, that a, a piece of legislation is ineffective no, Your Honor. unless the text of the statute is supported by legislative history is, is extraordinary. No, no, Your Honor. Perhaps I'm stating it too broadly. I think what this Court said is it would not assume a fundamental change absent some indication in the legislative history. Uh, it would not assume that, and I think it shouldn't assume it here. If Congress made the change, we suggest... May I ask you a question going back to looking at the time the statute was enacted? Were there people in federal prisons at that time who had been sentenced under the regime that Justice O'Connor described, such as having gotten a a, a sentence of six months, or a sentence of six months in jail, suspended, and in lieu thereof, probation for five years, for example? That's most of the cases that were coming before courts in October of 88, Your Honor. And under that view, what would you have interpreted the original sentence to refer to? The, the suspended term of imprisonment or the probationary period? The suspended sentence. You never used the probation term as the barometer. Never. 
So you're saying that there are people, there were, at the time the statute was enacted, there was a prison population that would have fit the description that Justice O'Connor's hypothetical used. Yes, Your Honor. And they were eligible for having their probation revoked at that time. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, Do you disagree with the government that that would not have fit fit this statute because prior to this change, probation was not considered a sentence of any kind? Your Honor, it's called a sentence in 1984, uh, but it's not treated as a sentence in every respect. As I indicated, if you don't get credit for time... Before it wasn't treated... I mean, you didn't convert probation time into jail time because probation was not considered a sentence. Yes, Your Honor. didn't fit the words a sentence until the change in the law. Yes, Your Honor. And even after the change in the law, after 1984, when probation was called a sentence, you still didn't use the probation terms. You go back to any sentence that was available under subchapter A at the time of the initial sentencing, which means you go back to the revocation range. Every court of appeals to interpret that has said that that meant the original guideline range. So you still didn't use the probation term even after probation was called a sentence. Probation was called a sentence to make it more understandable to citizens. They didn't understand the suspended sentence part, and Congress wanted to do away with those formalities in, in the 1984 Act that were confusing. And they also may have wanted to make it easier to re- make statutes or certain crimes not eligible for probation. There used to be a split in this court about whether that meant, if you just simply say no probation, does that also outlaw suspended sentences? And they wanted to do away with all that gobbledygook. But it didn't change the way probation worked. Even after 1984, you still didn't use the probation term, which is based on how long it takes to pay a fine, those sorts of questions, into revocation sentences. I suppose it's... It wouldn't be strange to think that, that if, if Congress did have in mind uh, the old system and, and was referring to one-third of the original sentence that was suspended, I, I wonder, I, always my understanding that, that if you violated the terms of your probation, not just one-third of the, of the sentence that was imposed would, would, would be given you, but, but in fact the whole term. Um, would, would it be normal to revoke uh, probation which was a grace from, the, from, from a sentence that was presumably a considered sentence, revoke the probation and then say, but we're not going to give you your original sentence, we're just going to give you one-third of it. I think that my understanding is that the, the, the parameters were set by the, the suspended sentence. Um, I, I don't think that the... I'm court... talking about under the old system. Yes, Your Honor. Justice uh, O'Connor was, uh, was referring to. It had always been my assumption that if, if you violated your probation, what would happen is that the original sentence, the full term of it, not one-third of it, would come down upon you. No, Your Honor, the, the court could suspend imposition of the sentence, for example, and there would be no sentence to put in its place. So I think that the court still retained discretion. But there was something over their head, just like there's a guideline range over a defendant's head now. Yes, but this statute would have made a change in that prior to this statute, if a, if a person on probation were found in possession of, uh, of cocaine, as this man was, the judge might not have revoked this, uh, probation at all. He might have said, well... I'll give you a second chance. But as I understand, it is now mandatory that the probation must be revoked if this particular uh, uh, reason for revoking exists. Yes, Your Honor. So that, that in that sense, it's tougher. Even well, though if, if you're dealing with the, the world of uh, earlier, earlier sentencing uh, jargon, uh, your answer to Justice Scalia's question is based on uh, the hypothesis that the judge in that hypothetical case said he would uh, suspend the imposition of sentence. But as, as I uh, recall it myself, and as I think I understand the discussion, 
judges also under that regime would impose a sentence but suspend serving it. In, in, in other words, they wouldn't always suspend the imposition of a sentence. And it seems to me your answer, Justice Scalia, doesn't fit so well in the, in the latter situation, where, the, where the, the, there are sentences imposed but its service is suspended. Yes, Your Honor. Um, even in that context, though, looking at this case, the judge, under the guidelines, wouldn't have given more than six months. It's as if he imposed a sentence of six months and suspended it. The guidelines suggest that a sentence of more than six months wasn't warranted, and the government's agreement and the plea agreement suggests that a sentence beyond six months wasn't warranted. So looking even at the suspended imposition, or the imposition, uh, excuse me, execution suspended, it's still the sentence that would have been imposed would not have been more than six months. Uh, what was the sentence impo- in fact imposed in this case? Um, I, I think pro- Mr. Granderson was placed on probation for five years plus a $2,000 fine, and that doesn't fit either side's description. Um, Mr. Smith, make sure I understand something, because I was never a federal sentencing judge. In, in the case that you're just talking about, which the execution is suspended, yes, Your Honor. if the probation is violated, the judge, under the prior law, had complete discretion uh, to determine how much of the execution would then be imposed. Isn't that true? Um, so if, I believe so, Your Honor. Okay. Um, if you look at the legislative history the way we see it, where a floor is being placed within the existing framework of zero to six months, that is a minor technical change, the kind you would not expect there to be a lot of legislative history on. And so it's not surprising that there's not here. More importantly, since the briefs have been filed, I indicate that Senator Thurman introduced a bill to change this, and he did so because... Congress recognized, or at least he told Congress, that there was ambiguity in that statute. It's interesting that that is now part of the omnibus Senate crime bill. Senate Bill 1607 states that if a person possesses drugs while on probation, the court shall, this is what it says, the court shall revoke the sentence of probation and re-sentence the defendant under subchapter A to a sentence that in terms a term of imprisonment. Yeah, I guess if that's what they want to change it to, it must not mean that now. Um, Your Honor, that is not the legislative history. Senator Thurman's... legislative history we're talking about now, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. And future, future history, so to speak. Yes, Your Honor. And Senator Thurman's reason for in- introducing it was that there was ambiguity in the statute. The, this final decision where there's ambiguity in the statute is committed to the courts, uh, not, not to senators or individual senators. Yes, Your Honor. This has limited impact, but all I'm trying to tell the court is... If this court finds ambiguity, it would be telling Congress nothing more than it's already been told. By a superior source. Indeed, Your Honor. (laughs) All I'm saying is I don't think it would be a surprise to Congress to learn that they had, as Justice Blackmun said, that this is not a particularly well-drafted statute. Um, I think when the government's suggestion would lead to fundamental and dramatic changes. This court should require real clarity. When the government's suggestion would lead to these kind of disparities and potential constitutional concerns, this court should require real clarity. On your reading, could the judge say, originally, the guidelines gave me zero to six months, but I could have gone up to five years if I wrote an opinion saying why I was going outside the guidelines. Now I'm ready to do that. Would that be within the range on your interpretation? I asked you before, I think you said that the range would be two months minimum, six months maximum. Could the judge at this stage say, I'm going to go back to the sentencing authority I had originally 
sentence him to the five years, and I'll write an opinion explaining why. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, if the facts warranted it, they could depart as they normally depart. But we would have a right to appeal that departure as being above the range. The government takes that opportunity away from it and creates disparities as a result. But that's an interesting point because it raises this hypothetical. If a person ha is a misdemeanor and gets five years of probation, and that person commits murder while on probation, this, the statute would, Congress would take that person back to the zero to six month range, and that's where they're presumptively supposed to be sentenced upon revocation, within zero to six months. Even if the court departed, it could go only to 12 months, the statutory maximum. The government's position would cause a person who simply possesses drugs, not that that's not a serious offense, but possesses drugs, to get 20 months, eight months more than somebody who commits murder in that context. The, the government, with a more serious crime than murder, always has the option to independently prosecute the person, and not simply to resort to this provision. Yes, Your Honor, and they have the opportunity to prosecute for, for possession of drugs as well. Smith, I think you've just given me an example in which the government's interpretation would be more lenient to the defendant than yours. Isn't, wasn't that the point of your example? No, Your Honor. Uh, their interpretation yields 20 months for possession of drugs, whereas we submit that the range of zero to six months is what ought to apply. No, I, I thought your point was that uh, you should be able, uh, in the event of murder, to, uh, to consider going higher. Consider going beyond the guidelines range. Wasn't that your point? Your Honor, I, I think upon any revocation, you can depart if departure is warranted, even with drug possession. All I'm trying to say is the government's uh, situation in a misdemeanor context would cause somebody who murders while they're on a misdemeanor probation to potentially get less than a person who possesses drugs while on probation. This court should require real clarity not only when there's uh, a fundamental and dramatic change that they're suggesting, not only when there are disparities created, the government suggests. But when you're taking away a judge's right ability to do justice, justice as he sees fit, individualized sentencing is best unless Congress restricts it. Here, no one, no one below, no one here. You know that individualized sentencing is best. I mean, Congress provided for a regime of individualized sentencing for a long time. It abandoned it in 84 and now has guidelines. How is a court to say that one is better than the other? Um, Your Honor, there are limits Congress has placed on it, but they've never taken away individualized sentencing. Well, they haven't totally taken away, but why, sh why should a court say that more judicial discretion is better than less dis judicial discretion in sentencing? Your Honor, I guess it's because I just don't think that judges are... I mean, why do we have judges? Uh, they'd be simply robots if they're simply doing what, what Congress says has to be done and Congress is doing all the sentencing. I think we have judges because we want justice to be tempered. It's not a necessary with part of your case to talk about the difference between individualized sentencing and guideline sentencing. No, Your Honor. The only point I'm trying to make is no one below and no one here argues that Mr. Granderson needs nine more months of jail from today. No one says that's the just result. And I recognize that if Congress states clearly that that's not what should happen, this court has to follow it. But Congress hasn't stated so clearly here. If there are no other questions from the court, I have nothing further to say. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Hunger, you have 10 minutes remaining. I have a few brief points I'd like to make. First, <clears throat> in response to Justice Stevens' question about whether uh, there would be a class of defendants who had been sentenced under the previous scheme, the answer to that question is no. This statute, the effective date of this provision was uh, to those defendants whose term of probation began in 1989, that is, after December 31st, 1988, the statute was enacted in, uh, I believe, in, well, it was adopted by Congress in October of 1988. 
So because probation begins under the statute upon imposition of the, the sentence, anyone who received a sentence of probation that would be covered by this statute would have done so after the statute went into effect. How would the statute apply, Mr. Hunger, to a person who four years earlier had been given a suspended sentence of six months, then it was suspended, and he was put on probation for six for, for five years. Now, that would not be a sentence, I understand, as, as Justice Ginsburg had pointed out, but he's on probation at the time. And then that person's probation was revoked. Would this statute apply to that person? No, because the effective date, the, the effective date provision of this particular statute, it's Section 7303D of the 1988 Act, which I had this amendment. The, the effective date of this provision, it applies to sentences of probation that begin on, uh, after December 31st, 1988. So in your hypothetical, it would not uh, be, so that, not be subject so that to this if provision. Sentence, if a person on, on probation had its probation revoked after the enactment of the statute, that person would not have been, had any mandatory requirement. I mean, the statute simply wouldn't apply. The statute would not apply to that person, yes. The, the statute you refer to explicitly says that the, stat, the effective date of this statute shall be uh, with reference to those persons whose sentence of probation was after the effective date? Uh, yes, Your Honor, I think I have the, <clears throat> the language here. It's section 7303D of the Act. 7303D of the 1988 Act, and it provides the amendments made by this section shall apply with respect to persons whose probation begins after December 31st, 1988. All right. Um, in answer to uh, Justice Scalia's question about whether there are any cases in which the government's interpretation would be more lenient, there are such cases. In fact, there was a district court case, which we didn't say in our brief, uh, in the District of uh, the District of Columbia, United States against Harrison, 815F sub 494. In that case, <clears throat> the judge held that the government's inter interpretation was more lenient, and therefore, regardless of the ambiguity, the rule of lenity of any ambiguity, the rule of lenity required adoption of the government's interpretation because there, the, the guidelines range uh, was 97 to 121 months, and the court had departed downward and imposed probation. But then, the, the but defendant. That's an extraordinary case with a downward departure, where the sentence is within within the guidelines range. Then, uh, overwhelmingly, the your interpretation is going to and incarcerate the defendant for a considerably longer time. That's correct, Your Honor. The, the, the Sentencing Commission statistics, the 1991 and 1992 annual reports, suggest that only 5 to 10 percent of probationary sentences <clears throat> are downward departures. But, of course, in those downward departures, in this case, for example, the effect of, of applying respondent's interpretation would have been to mandate a sentence of over 40 months in prison, uh, which is far more than our interpretation could ever mandate. Uh, but it's true that in most cases that would not, might not be the case. It is, it is true that supervised release terms, in terms of um, number of months or years, tends to be shorter than pro sentences of probation. Is that not so? I don't know whether that's true, Your Honor. There are limitations that, that are uh, <clears throat> more strict in some cases than in probation. But it's interesting to note that of the 12 Court of Appeals cases that we now, that, that, of which we're aware, that apply this provision, Granderson is the only one in which the defendant received five years of probation. In every other one of those cases, the defendant received no more than three years of probation. And I'm not aware of statistics indicating whether supervised release or probation on average is, is longer. Mr. Hunger, how does the rule of lenity work? I'm, I'm not really sure how it works. Uh, uh, if, if, just make believe the rule of, we, we, uh, we, we decide to apply the rule of lenity. Would that give us a constant interpretation of this statute, on the, depending upon uh, uh, what kind of a situation first comes before us? Or rather, would we interpret the statute leniently to the first defendant and then also leniently to the second defendant, uh, depending upon which interpretation uh, works case by case? I think the rule of lenity requires a constant interpretation. You can't mm -hmm. determine lenity based solely on the facts of the particular case. 
and then, uh, and then have, a have the statute mean different things depending on, on the, the particular defendant before the court. Can you, can you make your, your basic lenity determination based upon the standard case, the non-extraordinary case? Absolutely, Justice Souter. But, would but be our, this one rather than the D.C. Circuit case? Our, well, you, I suppose you would also have to consider the, the degree of lenity. That is, it may be slightly more lenient here and, and far more harsh there, and that would be taken into consideration as well. But our principal submission is that the rule of lenity does not apply. It certainly doesn't apply to permit adoption of respondents' interpretation. If it applies, then the only, the only way to construe the statute is to require a new shorter term of probation, which we think is absurd, but can't require a respondent's interpretation because respondent's interpretation is well, contrary to the plain language the of the statute. the rule of lenity. Actually, it's reading the, the statute. Rule of that's right. The rule of, no, Your Honor, the rule of lenity, as this Court said uh, last term in the Smith against United States case, which we've cited in our brief, the rule of lenity doesn't come into play to let you choose between one interpretation that is consistent with the language and another that's not. You the rule of lenity just doesn't permit you to adopt a, an interpretation that is, that is barred by the plain language of the statute. Well, once we've applied the rule of least absurdity, then we may be in a position to apply the rule of lenity. Well, that's my next point, Your Honor. That Justice Scalia and, and Justice Kennedy, I think, and others have suggested that our interpretation is, is not consistent with the plain language, then, so we just have to pick and choose among various inconsistent interpretations, that is, interpretations that aren't consistent with the plain language. But our interpretation is consistent with the plain language. It is possible for the phrase, one-third of the original sentence, to refer to the length, but not the type of the sentence. Indeed, Congress used exactly that same formulation in section 3583G, because there the, set, the Congress, the, the, the term of imprisonment to be imposed depends on and is based on one-third of the term of supervised release. But we know from the context that Congress didn't mean a new term of supervised release that's one-third as long as the old term, even though it used the same structure it meant in prison, and it made that very clear in Section 3583G. We think it's equally clear here in context, because when Congress said, sentence the defendant, Congress had already said revoke probation, so we know probation is not an option. Therefore, by saying sentence the defendant to not less than one-third of the original sentence, Congress had to be saying sentence the defendant to prison. And the only question is how long, and that is answered by the phrase not Why less than one-third. Why isn't it just as logical, then, if, if you go back to the only reference you have for incarceration, which is the originally available sentence of incarceration? You want to lop off of probation to get to a sentence of incarceration. You have to drop something on your interpretation, and on the other interpretation, you take the only incarceration sentence that's possible, what the sentence that was open to the judge originally. I don't see why that's not a, a, an equally permissible interpretation. Because original sentence doesn't mean sentence that was available but not imposed. Original sentence has only one possible meaning in, in, as the words are used but in the English language. We know it cannot mean original sentence because here the original sentence was one of probation. And that's precisely our point. The original sentence was a sentence of probation. Therefore, original sentence means the sentence of probation that was imposed in this case. But one-third of the original sentence doesn't necessarily mean 20 months of probation, just as in the supervised release provision where one-third of the term of release doesn't mean a new sentence of term of, uh, of supervised release here, one-third of the original sentence doesn't mean a new sentence of probation. It well, means... In, in, uh, Ms. Lee, it seems to me in, in, in 3583G, the, the supervised release provision you're talking about, they made it very clear. They said, and require the defendant to serve in prison. Yes, Your Honor. Not less than one-third of the term and of our supervised point is release. That and, and there's no such language here. Because it was unnecessary, because when Congress says sentence, at the point in the statute where Congress is now directing the court to sentence the defendant, 
probation is no longer an option because Congress has already directed the court to revoke probation. And the phrase revoke the sentence of probation means, in federal sentencing law, probation is not an option. Something else has to be imposed instead. The only something else that there is, by the time you get to the part of the statute that mandates a new sentence, Can you cite me your authority? You've said it several times for the proposition that once probation is revoked, the judge does not have the authority to reinstate probation on different terms and conditions. Section, well, it's, it's inherent in the very, in the very doctrine. You don't the very, have the judicial Section no, 35. No case has said that that you know of. Yes, every case that construes Section 3565A2, which talks about revocation of probation, says that the court has to impose some other sentence from within the guidelines range, but, but probation is not We all enough. think this, this statutory language commands that and we forbids th- a different sentence of probation on much more severe terms. The fact that Congress has always used revoke to mean exactly that, I think, commands the result that we urge. You have no authority for it. Thank you, Mr. Hunger. The case is submitted.